Well, let's open up to 2 Kings tonight. 2 Kings chapter 2. We're going to pick up a little before where we left off on Sunday. I want to go back a little bit. Tonight we move into the life of Elisha. I was thinking as we were worshiping how hard it must have been to be Elisha. To be the man who followed the prophet Elijah. Hey, I mean, just think for a moment. The greatest prophet Israel had seen since Moses. Elijah did amazing and awesome things. Was renowned throughout the country of Israel. And along comes Elisha. And we, we use the phrase, he's got some big shoes to fill. Well, I'm telling you, these shoes were huge. As we read about and saw the life of Elijah and what an amazing man of God he truly was. And for Elisha to follow, you know, he's going to need something special. And he gets it. So Father, we pray one more time that as we enter into your, into your word that you will teach us. We invite your Holy Spirit to unite with the truth of your word in speaking exactly what you want us to hear. And keeping his Father clear on the truth of Scripture and, and what's going on here. Open our eyes to understanding, Lord, but especially open our hearts to embrace you and all that you want to do in our lives. And may we be of service to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, which is where we started Sunday. But let's read through this again. It came about when the Lord was about to take up Elijah by a whirlwind to heaven, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Then the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Be still. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho approached Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he answered, Yes, I know. Be still. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Now fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood opposite them at a distance, while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Elijah took his mantle and folded it together. He struck the waters and they were divided here and there, so the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. He said, You've asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. As they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by the whirlwind into heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. Well, then he took hold of his own clothes and he tore them in two pieces, a sign of mourning and sorrow. Verse 13, he also took up the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and struck the waters and said, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he also had struck the waters, they were divided here and there. And Elisha crossed over. Now we studied Elijah's rapture and his return on Sunday. 
We talked about the fact that after being caught up in that whirlwind of fire, that chariot of fire, that Elisha or Elijah himself came to edify Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration, Matthew 17 tells us. We know also that John the Baptist came as a type or in the power of Elijah. Not the person of Elijah, but he came in the power of Elijah to identify Jesus as Messiah. We talked about how Elijah will come at the end of things during that tribulation, I believe the first half of the tribulation period, to testify one last time for Jesus Messiah. We base that understanding on Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 where the prophet said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And in Revelation chapter 11, as we looked at again on Sunday, I believe that is confirmed. And if you missed that study on Sunday, I encourage you to go back and listen to it online. You can pick it up on the web there. We return tonight to this section of scripture, not for Elijah's sake, but for Elisha's sake. Because as we begin on into the life of Elisha now, we see some things here about his character, his nature, that are worth paying attention to. We met him already in 1 Kings 19. Elijah was coming back from his mid-ministry crisis. And on the way back, he meets up with Elisha and he puts his mantle on him, and which was a sign of, follow me, be my disciple, you're going to be the next guy. And so Elisha follows him. Well, now we see some, thing, some more things about Elisha. Three things to jot down if you'd like to do so. Number one, we see that Elisha is a devoted pupil. He's a devoted pupil. He will not leave the side of Elijah. He knows Elijah's going to be taken up. He knows this is Elijah's last day. He's not going anywhere. He's going to stay right where his master is. He says three times, I will not leave you. He says, as as long as you live and as the Lord lives, I'm not going anywhere. But where you go, I'm sticking with you. He is a devoted pupil. And I think the Lord is looking for a few good devoted pupils. Some devoted disciples, people who will say, I am not going to leave you, Lord. I'm going to go wherever you go, and I'm going to do whatever you say, and I'm going to be in the place where you are. And whether I like it or not, whether it's about my purposes or not, Lord, I want to be where you are. I want to be involved with what you are doing. Now I'll tell you, gang, that's the cry of my heart. Now, I trip and fall and stumble all the time, but that, that's my greatest desire. I want to see what God's doing and be involved in the place That he's called me to be involved. Sadly, Jesus said in Luke 18, verse 8, he said, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find the devoted pupils, the devoted disciples, those who are just wanting to do what he wants them to do? Or will he find people who are more concerned with their own experience, their own understanding, or their own direction? Jesus calls us to faithfulness to him faithful devoted pupils that is students students of his word students of what he has for us listeners to his spirit I've had a lot of personal conviction lately about my own discipleship asking the question how devoted am I willing to be what am I willing to give up how far am I willing to go for Jesus and the gospel Paul said I'll do anything He said in that section in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he said, I will become all things to all people if by doing so I can win some to Jesus. That doesn't mean he's going to violate his integrity in the Lord. That's not it at all. He says, I will give up my rights, my freedom in grace, if it will win somebody to Jesus Christ. What, you mean he would become legalistic? Absolutely. And listen to me on this, because these days, and I'm kind of getting off a little bit, but it's important. 
these days there is the, the word legalism is used so much in the church and my sense is that the word legalism is used so that we don't have to do what we really could be or should be doing in the Lord oh well that's legalistic if you, if you say that you've got to follow this particular thing in scripture well that's, that's legalistic as it gets closer to Jesus is my question we need to understand and know beyond the shadow of a doubt that nothing saves us but grace. Grace alone. Faith in God's grace. That is the key to our salvation. Absolutely. But once we know we're saved, once we realize that we're walking in grace, the next question, as far as I'm concerned, is how far can I go in obedience to the Father? How much of the law can I keep? Not because it saves me, but because it's better for me. The law of the Lord is perfect, the Word tells us. I want to follow every single prescription that Jesus lays out for me. Anything that will draw me closer to the Father. And my friends, if you're a graced Christian, you understand what Jesus has done for you, everything you do in obedience is not legalism, it's love. Because of the heart from which it comes. It's only legalism when you're pointing the finger at other people and saying, if you don't do these things, you're going to hell. If you don't do these things, you're not a good Christian. Well, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody but me, and I am asking this question. How far am I willing to go for Jesus Christ? How devoted am I willing to be as a student? Elisha was a devoted pupil. He would not leave the side of his master. Elisha, secondly, has a determined patience. I love this. Two times the sons of the prophets bug him. Well, you know, today's the last day. And we happen to have this insight from the Lord. The Lord told us. He gave us the word. And the word is, your master's dying today. You know that. And by the way, I think there was some jealousy there. Because Elisha was the one who was going to wear the mantle. Elisha was the next pick to take the place of Elijah. And the sons of the prophet knew that. He's going to be taken from you today. They said twice. And both times, he says, I know. Be still. I understand this. Chill out. Elisha knows what's coming, but gang, he is patient for the moment. He has a determined patience. If I were there listening to Elisha, he he could say, and I'm going to put words in his mouth here, boys, let's not rush things. I know Elijah's going to be taken, but if we concentrate on his leaving, we may miss what he's doing right now. If we're so focused on the next thing that's going to happen with him, we may miss this right here. And I think part of the reason that Elisha is following Elijah around so closely is he doesn't want to miss a single thing knowing that this teacher of his is going to be taken from him. James writes about this in James chapter 4 verse 13. He says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there or engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Point is, if we're so focused on tomorrow, we will miss what he's doing today. Those of you who are longing for the rapture, let me just say this to you, as I need to say it to myself from time to time. We can get so focused on the rapture of the church and Jesus taking us home that we miss the glory and the wonder and the supernatural things he is doing right now that he doesn't want us to miss. So I shouldn't long for the rapture? No, you should. And you should live for that wonderful day with eyes wide open and patience 
determined patience to what he's doing now. James said in James chapter 5 verse 7, Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the produce, the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. That encouragement is there. And that joy is there. But don't miss what he's doing right now. If we're always looking for the next big thing, we can miss the wonderful things that he's doing quietly right here among us. As Jim was praying just about the prayer time yesterday, how precious that was. How wonderful the things that that God made clear to different ones of us in different ways. Don't miss those things. Because we're so intent on the next thing. Don't forget God is the great I am. He's not the great I will be. He's present right now. He's acting right now. And he will act then. So this devoted pupil with a determined patience now asks for a double portion. Elisha asks for and receives a double portion. Look back at verse 9. When they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. What does this mean? What is the idea of a double portion? I mean, we can extrapolate. We can say, oh, he just wants to be twice as powerful, twice as popular, twice as preeminent. He wants to be twice the prophet that Elijah was. That's what he's asking for, right? More power, more prestige. I don't think that's what he's asking for. And if you know Scripture, as I would assume Elisha knew Scripture, he's asking for something else. If you go back, you find the first time this phrase double portion is used in the scripture is Deuteronomy chapter 21.15 and it's an interesting law given by the Lord. Listen to this. He says, if a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and I think immediately of Rachel and Leah, Jacob's wives, he loved Rachel, not so much with Leah, you know, old, old bad eyes, she couldn't see very well, there's something not right about Leah. That Jacob found out the next morning after they were married. Oh, what's that? You know, he loved Rachel, didn't love Leah. So God, in his incredible loving father heart, looks at this situation and he brings this law. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him sons, if the firstborn belongs to the unloved wife, then it shall be in the day he wills what he has to his sons he cannot make the son of the loved the firstborn before the son of the unloved who is the firstborn in other words you can't give the inheritance to the son of the woman that you love more you give it to the firstborn son regardless of which wife now you guys who are married to two wives this is probably helpful for you right now most of the rest of us Obviously, this is dealing with a time where where God is being patient as he's slowly growing up the Israelites and slowly bringing to the point, and he will bring them to a point where marriage is simply as it was in the very beginning between Adam and Eve. It's between a man and a woman, not a man and a a handful of women. Okay, But he's patient, and he's bringing up these, these children to understanding. And so in this law, he goes on, he says, He shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, listen to this, by giving him a double portion of all that he has for he is the beginning of his strength to him belongs the right of the firstborn what the double portion speaks of is the firstborn inheritance that's what Elisha is asking for I want the firstborn inheritance Elijah 
As you have been a father to me, and I like a son to you, now I want the inheritance spiritually of the firstborn. Isaiah 61 verse 7 promises Israel, instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. And instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. And so the double portion, what it speaks of loud and clear, is a son having full rights and inheritance of a firstborn. That's what Elisha wants. Firstborn rights. He's following in the ministry of Elijah as a son following in his father's family business. He's asking then for the same spirit that Elijah had, but double the amount so that he can carry on the mission of Elijah. What was the mission of Elijah? Remember, his mission was his name. Elijah means Yahweh is God. The mission is to pronounce the one and true God to Israel. Now he will go on, Elisha, this successor, and it's interesting, Elijah's name means Yahweh is God. Elisha means God is my salvation. So it's a step further. Not only is Yahweh God, and must we recognize Him as such, but He's our salvation. No other God will save you. No other God can possibly save us, but Yahweh, and as we understand through Him, Jesus Christ. So he wants that that double portion so that he can have the power that Elijah had that his ministry would be validated. Go back to what I started out with. Elisha is following in massive footsteps. How is he now going to prove to all these other sons of the prophets and the people of Israel that, that he has the stamp of approval of God? He's got big shoes to fill. What's he going to do? How is the Lord going to do it? And all Elisha says is, Lord, double portion. Give me everything I need to carry out and fulfill the ministry to which I have been called. And immediately, Elisha gets it. This double portion. In fact, from this point all the way through the 8th chapter, we see miracle after miracle after miracle. The power flows, and it's awesome. Watch what happens, verse 14. He took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him. He struck the waters and said, Where is Yahweh, the God of Israel? And when he had also struck the waters, they were divided here and there, and Elisha crossed over. And when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho opposite him saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. And so all the other prophets now are recognizing, Yes, he does bear the mantle. He does have the power. Again, the parting of the, of the Jordan is huge. Not just because it's a, it's a big parting, and especially when the Jordan is at flood stage, it can be as, as far as a mile across, and pretty deep, and moving pretty fast. But it, it's an amazing picture, because this is now the fourth time we've seen a parting of water in the Scriptures. The first time was Moses parting the Red Sea. The second time, you recall, was Joshua. As he brought the people into the land, he parted the Jordan. The successor of Moses parts the Jordan River. And so the people recognized in Joshua that authority that Moses had before as he parts the water. Well, then Elijah parts the water just before his death. And now immediately after that, Elisha does the same thing as the successor. Like Joshua was to Moses, Elisha is the successor of Elijah. And so he parts the Jordan. The Jewish people have a great understanding of this. Psalm 114 verse 1 says, When Israel went forth from Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of a strange language, Judah became God's sanctuary. Israel became his dominion. The sea looked and fled. The Jordan turned back. 
And what the psalmist is saying, and the Hebrew mind would understand this, that when the people left Egypt, the Lord took up a new residence in the people of Judah, in the people of Israel. Now the people were his place of residence. In fact, as you recall, in that march across the wilderness for those 40 years, where was the Ark of the Covenant? Where was the tabernacle placed? It was right in the middle of the people. When they camped, smack dab in the middle. When they moved, right in the middle. Because God would, would be at the center of Israelite life. And what they understood is that the parting of the waters of both the Red Sea and the Jordan River was proof of the presence of God. And that's what Elisha had. The very first miracle here, to part the waters, he has the proof of the presence of God. And when the Lord parted the Jordan for Elisha in full view of the sons of the prophets, it was proof of the presence with this young man. But almost immediately, some began to doubt his integrity. Verse 16. They said to him, Behold now, there are with your servant fifty strong men. Please let them go and search for your master. Perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him on some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But they urged him until he was ashamed, and he said, Send. Therefore, they sent, uh, they sent therefore fifty men, and they searched three days, but did not find him. Well, of course not, because he went up in a chariot of fire. Well, they returned to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, Did I not say to you, do not go? In other words, I told you so. What's going on here? Sons of the prophets realize Elisha's coming back without Elijah. They know Elijah's got to be dead now, but they want to go get his body. We've got to go find his body so we can give him a proper burial. And Elisha says, no, no, you don't need to do that. God's taking care of it. No, 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 we've got to go get his body. And they're not paying credence to what Elisha is saying. You don't have to go. No, we've got to go. We've got to get Elijah. And so he goes, all right, fine. He doesn't want to appear heartless like he doesn't care. So he says, send. Go look for him. They spend three days combing the mountains. Not a single sign. Not a piece of evidence that the body of Elijah is anywhere. And when they come back, I love it. He just says, did I not say to you, don't go? Do you not understand now what I'm saying to you? Sounds like a parental statement to me. I think I've said almost that exact thing to one of my kids at some point. Did I not tell you what would happen if you... But you want to do that? Okay. And there's, there's some wisdom in this thing. Elijah shows some wisdom in that sometimes, especially for parents and teachers and leaders, and this is hard, but sometimes what you have to do is teach the truth and then let people deal with it themselves. I'll be honest with you as a pastor, I don't like that sometimes. I want to teach the truth and then I want to come over into each one of your homes and make sure that you're following the exact truth that I taught because I know I'm right. You know. It's hard to just put it out there and then step back and say, they're not mine, Lord, they're yours. They're not my people, they're God's people. It's not my understanding that they need it, it's your spirit and your word, so we're going to put the truth out there, and then you take it and do with it as the Lord leads you. And it's not an easy thing, but that's exactly what Elisha does. He lets them figure it out for themselves. And then the second miracle of water occurs, verse 19. Then the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold now, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees. He's talking about Jericho. But the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. Literally, the water is bitter, and the land is unfruitful because they can't use the water to feed the land. So he said, Bring me a new jar and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. 
He went out to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have purified these waters and there shall not be from their death or unfruitfulness any longer. So the waters have been purified to this day according to the word of Elisha which he spoke. It's a great location, Jericho, but it's poor in natural resource. That's the problem these men are sharing. By the way, apparently natural springs abound around Jericho today and the water is still sweet and fresh and usable for crops and drinking and and whatever else it's needed for. But there's an interesting spiritual parallel in Israel, I believe, to this physical problem. Israel was in the perfect location, the location God chose for them. Now, I, I know a lot of you, when you think of Israel, you get this picture of this dry, dusty, barren desert land. Well, that's the way it was after the land had been trashed. That's where it got to after the Jews were taken out of the land, after they were driven out. It became a very barren place, but it was not like that before. The Bible describes the beauty of the land. And if you go there today, you see a land coming back alive. And there's beauty there that would blow your mind. And I'm going to throw another plug in because I haven't done it much lately. You've got to go to Israel. We are going next October. I know gas prices are high. I know the economy is in a difficult place. I know we're all trying to get by. I, I'm asking, I'm begging, I'm saying, borrow, beg, what? March. Did I say October? I meant March. Because if you go in October, have a nice time, we're not going. That's March. Which gives you, gives you even more time to prepare and plan, but go. Whatever you have to do. I'm telling you, Sharon and I were talking about this the other day, and she said, well, what do you think, Rick? Do you, do you think we're going to have enough people sign up, and do you think we're going to go? And I said, you know, if I, if I have to take five people, we're going to go. It is that significant to your spiritual growth and understanding of the Word. I'm telling you. And those who have been there know exactly what I'm saying. Going to the land and studying the Bible and praying and walking throughout that region, it will change your spiritual life absolutely guaranteed you got to go. So, that's my commercial. Anyway, it's a great location here. It's a beautiful place. God chose it out of all the regions of the entire earth. He didn't choose Maui. He chose Israel. And he said, this is my land. This is the place where I'm going to put my name there in Jerusalem. And yet, the people brought into this land, remember it was described as a land flowing with milk and honey? The problem is nothing's flowing in Jericho but stinky, bad, bitter water. So what's the problem? Israel was the perfect location, physically and spiritually, but the water had gone bad, probably because of idolatry. Probably because the people were turning their back on the Lord. They were physically fruitless because they were spiritually faithless. Boy, doesn't that apply to us. The fruit of spiritual things in our lives, the physical fruit, that is, people coming to the Lord because we have shared Jesus with them. The fruit of the Spirit on us that's seen in visible, in physical, tangible ways, it begins to dry up and go away when we are spiritually faithless, just as the people of Israel were. And so the Lord gives a beautiful word picture in this miracle. He says says through Elisha, Elisha says, bring a new bowl. What's the new bowl represent? New bowl, new prophet. There's a new man here, so we're going to use a new bowl, not one of the old ones, a brand new thing. God's doing a new thing here, this new ministry of a new bowl. And he said, fill it with salt. Now, salt was understood then and now to have purifying properties. In fact, to the spiritual mind of a, of a spiritually thinking Jew, Leviticus 2.13, God said, Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt. 
so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. Why? It has that sense of purification to it. So bring salt in a bowl. He brings the salt in the bowl, pours it into the water, and it makes the water fresh and drinkable. There's only one problem with this. Please, if you're out hiking somewhere and you find bad water, don't pour salt into it because it's not going to help. We know this. Salt just makes water undrinkable. It does the exact opposite of what Elisha does. Pouring the salt into the water suddenly it's drinkable. How, that, that makes no physical sense. Why does he do it this way? James even says in James chapter 3, verse 11, salt water cannot produce fresh water. It, it doesn't make sense. So why does he do it? Because it's a miracle. Because he's doing the opposite of the natural. He's doing the supernatural. If he did a natural thing, the people could easily explain it away. They could say, oh, it's, it's a new agricultural discovery. It's a scientific thing. We figured it out. It was supernatural and miraculous so the people would know that the Lord and not Baal was the provider of fruit in Israel. Now listen to me. The same is true of us in our spiritual lives. The output of the fruit of the Spirit in my life is a supernatural thing. It is not something I can generate naturally. It's not something that I do because I practice. It's something the Spirit does in my life. The fruit of the Spirit gang, its proof of the presence of the Spirit. And notice I said the fruit of the Spirit and not the gifts of the Spirit. One more time, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you don't have that verse memorized, memorize it. You need to know the fruit of the Spirit. Because it's something we're looking for in our lives as evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. The gifts of the Spirit prove, gang, that the power is at work, but the fruit of the Spirit proves that the presence of the Spirit is there. Listen to the difference. The gifts of the Spirit, which are important and given by God to the church, the gifts prove the power, but the fruit proves the presence. What's the difference? The fruit shows love. The fruit shows joy. When I have fruit, spiritual fruit in my life, people begin to see characteristics of my Father in me. And so the fruit of the Spirit is so critical because that's what shows the presence at work in me. And where the fruit is absent, where the fruit is absent, the presence of the Spirit is probably absent too. I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I may be wrong about this. So test this yourselves. But I think that the power gifts of the Spirit could be present and the Spirit not be present. Well, how's that possible? Because we can Im- imitate the power gifts. I think Satan can imitate the power gifts. But I'll tell you what Satan can't do. He can't imitate the fruit of the Spirit. Satan can't imitate love. He can't imitate those things that are characteristic of God. He can imitate the power, but the nature and the character of God's Holy Spirit is not so easy to pretend with. Well, so Rick, if that's the case, are you saying that I can lose the Holy Spirit from my life? No, I'm saying you can quench the Holy Spirit from my life, and I I believe that's a biblical statement. We can quench the Spirit. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have said, don't quench the Spirit. But it's something we have the ability to do. In the first place, that quenching the Spirit is evidence in our lives is not always in the gifting, 
as much as it's in the fruit. Okay, so what do I do if I'm lacking fruit? You get salty. You need to get salty again. Mark chapter 9, verse 50. Jesus said, salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? In other words, once salt goes bad, there's no fixing it. Once salt loses its saltiness, you can't get it back. And so Jesus says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Okay, we're still in the word picture area, aren't we? You use salt for the miracle. And Jesus said, have salt in yourself. And Rick's saying, get salty. Well, that's great. So what do I do? Go home and sprinkle it on my head? How does, how does that exactly work? Listen closely to this. I, I had to really think through this today. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. Paul says, conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. What's he talking about? Let me read it again and see if you can give me a one-word description of what he's talking about here. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. Evangelism. He's talking about evangelism. In the way we act and work and, and, and behave around other people, we make the most of every opportunity. We conduct ourselves the right way so that they can see Jesus in us. So listen, then he goes on to say, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. In the context of evangelism, the salt gang, I believe, is representative of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do I get the fruit of the Spirit alive in my life again when I feel like I've lost it? When maybe I've gotten out of touch with God? When I've been quenching the Spirit for whatever reason in my life? How do I get back there? You go back to the Gospel. You focus on the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And like putting salt on an apple. I always do this with our kids. We put salt on all of our fruit because it brings that sweetness right back out, doesn't it? I love doing that. If you've never done that, you think it's weird, go home and try it tonight. And you'll find it works. The salt is the gospel. Listen to me. No other doctrine, no other philosophy, no other teaching of man can purify and preserve like the gospel of Jesus Christ. So keep it on your lips. Let that be the salt that is on your lips and on your tongue. The gospel of Jesus. Jesus died for me, He rose for me, and He's coming for me. And this I believe with all my heart. Verse 23, going on. Then it says, Elisha went up from there to Bethel. And as he was going up, by the way, young lads came out from the city and mocked him. And they said, Go up, you bald head. (laughs) Go up, you bald head. When he looked behind them and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number. Don't curse a prophet. This is the, is the thing there. He went on from there to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. What in the world is going on here? This is one of those tough passages. Okay, so they cursed him. Elisha, come on, sticks and stones, man. <laughs> you call down a bear on them? Two bears? Two she-bears? Mother bears who tear these boys, 42 of them, up. What is going on here? I'll tell you on Sunday. Let's just keep going right on into chapter 3. Now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria in the 18th year. Okay, i got to stop there. The whole bear thing. I had a friend in youth ministry named Darren. I still have a friend. I just haven't talked to him in a while. But Darren and I went to this youth minister's conference for youth pastors. 1,500 youth pastors all sitting in this big auditorium. And on one day of the conference, and I believe I shared this, but it's been a while, um, they had some risers up on the stage. 
And so for every major um, setting there, major event of the, of the conference, they would call up different groups of people who could sit on the risers on the stage. Well, on this particular afternoon, they said, all bald-headed men, come on up to the stage. And so every bald-headed youth pastor, and there were a lot of them, there were many of them losing their hair thanks to these kids, got up on the stage. Well, Darren was one of them. Darren didn't have any hair, so he gets up there on the stage, and he's sitting there, and, and I'm just laughing. I'm watching him up there, and this is hilarious. Well, then I see him talking to the leader of the Youth Specialties Conference, Mike Iaconelli, and he's saying something they're talking, and Mike nods his head and comes out and says, Before we start, we have a youth pastor friend who has some scripture he would like to share, just to encourage, especially all of you bald-headed youth pastors. And Darren got up and he read this passage, and everybody, the place just broke apart. It was hilarious. So anyway... Moving on. Chapter 3. And we will talk about this on Sunday. I want to spend more time on it. I think it's important. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Jehoram, Jehoram is the ninth king of Israel. Jehoram, the son or grandson, really, of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned 12 years. When you see the son of, it can also mean the son by, you know, two or three generations. So... Jehoram's the grandson of Ahab now. Verse 2, surprise, surprise, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and his mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal, which his father had made. Well, good for him. He took that out of Jerusalem, but there were still pillars to Baal all over the land. There were still the high places. There were still the Asherah poles, and he still worshipped all of them. Verse 3, nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. The die gang was cast by Jeroboam. This is the ninth king down the line. And Israel is still doing the exact same thing they were doing under the reign of Jeroboam. Don't think for a moment that you don't have influence spiritually nine generations from now. Jeroboam did. And since his death is recorded in scripture, every time we see his name, it's in the context of idol worship. That's Jeroboam's legacy. Nine generations. And it will continue through the entire reign of all the kings of Israel. Verse 4. Now Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder. And he used to pay the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So he was paying tribute to him. And King Jehoram, verse 6, sent out, went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And then he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go up with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up as I am, you are, and I am as you are, and my people as your people, and my horses as your horses. And I mentioned before, Jehoshaphat is a good, God-fearing, God-loving king. But he makes some unwise decisions and he aligns himself with evil at times where he probably shouldn't. This is one of those. But it said, he said, which way shall we go up? Verse 8. And he answered, the way of the wilderness of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. So this is a three-way coalition here. And they made a circuit of seven days' journey, and there was no water for the army or for the cattle that followed them. And then the king of Israel, this is Jehoram, he said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. It's God's fault. We're stuck up here now. We've been traveling for seven days. We have no water. Lord, why would you do this to us? Whose idea was it to go to battle in the first place? It was Jehoram. God didn't tell him to do this. He chose to do it. But now that he's in a pickle, he's blaming God. Human nature, gang. We make decisions in our lives, and then when we get in the tight spot, we shake our fist at God as if it's his fault. And it's not. 
And Jehoram, he's the one who got them there. But Jehoshaphat, this is good stuff, wisely says in verse 11, Is there not a prophet of the Lord, of, of Yahweh here, that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the king of Israel's servants answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. That tells you something about Elisha. You see what he did? The role of Elisha in following Elijah was to pour water on the hands of Elijah. In other words, Elisha was Elijah's hand washer, his gopher, his butler, his cook, his driver, his servant, all rolled into one. Whatever menial task or labor was needed, Elijah said, Elisha, take care of it. And that was the role of Elisha. That was the training ground of prophecy. Before he became a great prophet, Elisha was a great servant. And that tells us something about the heart of our master, Jesus. In fact, in John 13, when he just finished washing the disciples' feet, he said to them, Do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And gang, you know, you're never more like Jesus than when you serve. Quiet service. Not the flashy stuff. But when you're just serving someone else in the body. When you're caring for someone else's needs. When you're visiting widows and orphans. When you're caring for the needs around you. You're Jesus-like. And it is the greatest preparation for power ministry. For great prophecy. Those things. Sometimes our hearts want to, want to jump out and do the big things for God. And you saying, okay, great. Well, let's start with washing some feet. Let's start with doing a little sweeping in the barn. That's preparation for great ministry.